0: Well, I think it's safe to assume that this afternoon would not be a good Sunday to begin an evening service at our church. We'll wait till next year's Super Bowl. I want to welcome you if you're visiting our church. We practice what is known as expository preaching here, which means we preach the word verse by verse. We go slower because that allows us to go deeper, it allows us to mine through almost every single word of the Scriptures based on a very simple concept. If God has said it, we better get it right. Because it does go slower, we cover less of the Bible on an annual or even decade by decade, and so we take every opportunity that we can to stick with whatever uh, whatever series or book we are in. And I have to admit that it gives me no small amount of amusement that while all around the world this morning, pastors are preaching on love, I get to preach on the doctrine of demons. <laughs> and that's exactly what we are talking about as we have started a new st- series regarding apostasy, the fallen ones. Last week, we started in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And we covered the first two verses, and it connects directly to what we're going to look at this morning in verses 3 through 5, and so I want to review. If you follow along in your Bibles, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 4 say this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And there's a few points of reminder or review that would be helpful for us as we continue on as Paul, starting in verse 3, explains what these uh, apostates are believing, what these false teachers are teaching. And so reviewing verses 1 and 2, we know that the Holy Spirit speaks through men. We know that how the scriptures, this is how the Scriptures were written. Paul doesn't explain exactly when or where This is referring to, but we do know that apostasy is prophesied and spoken of even by Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels throughout the Scriptures. One of the aspects of apostasy that is particular to the Scriptures is not just the falling away, but as we even use it in English today, a falling away from faith, a faith, a religion here, of course, referring to the faith, Christianity, the Bible, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Later times, as you may recall, refers to now. The later times, the end times, although there is a zenith, a pinnacle of that, that is to come in an unknown time, we know that the later days were inaugurated with the incarnation of Jesus Christ and will end at the end with His second coming and all that that entails in ushering us into Glory. So there is apostasy now. We stick with the scriptures. Our experience does not prove the scriptures. But that being said, we all know people who have apostatized. That is, people who have said they are Christians, who have gone to church, we knew in youth group, maybe even pastors that led you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who now say, I don't believe in God, or I do not believe that Jesus died for our sins. Now, there's many well known pastors over even the last five, ten years who have stepped down not because of some moral sin that disqualifies them from being elder based on First Timothy three, but because they no longer believe and they make that very public. We know that happens as well, not just among the influential and famous, but among those who are sitting among us even this morning. Now, what they do, as Paul continues in verse 1, is they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. These deceitful spirits are named after the one that they serve, the one that they follow, the great liar, Satan himself. These deceitful spirits are not uh, just feelings or movements. They are beings. They are the fallen angels. They are demons, which is clarified in the next description Doctrines of demons, literally the teachings of demons. Teachings of demons being anything that goes against the Word of God, whether it's just atheism, agnosticism, or false religion, even those that may use the Bible and quote the Bible. Many of you have experienced people knocking on your door two by two with name tags on their chests that can quote the Scriptures that they have memorized better than you can, and yet you know that they are promoting a false religion. These are doctrines of demons, anything that leads people astray in their thinking to the true gospel. It's not that the demons speak to these individuals directly. We see in verse 2 that it is by means of false teachers, These are liars because they are not telling the truth about the Bible, the Scriptures, what Jesus has taught, what God has revealed. They are hypocrites. They can only do this because their own consciences have been seared to the point of no longer being what a conscience has been created for. The same as a medical doctor back 2,000 years ago in Paul's day would take a hot iron because they didn't know how to fix something, and rather than let the infection grow or let that continue to be a problem, they would sear a body part so that it was rendered dead and ineffective. And that's the picture that Paul is using here. So that's a quick recap and summary of the major points of what we saw regarding apostasy and the doctrines of demons, but I do want to clarify a couple of points. Some may have asked, or you may have thought, why are they called doctrines of demons? Or more specifically, why do I refer to even some of the major religions in our world as doctrines of demons, when some of these religions are pointing to Jesus Christ, are saying worship Jesus Christ, but not saying worship demons? Because the goal in this war, and there is a war between Satan and God, which who's, you know that the, the ending, the victor, the victory has already been established, who will win. But fight they will, and fight they do. And to win the war, and the goal in the war is not merely that the demons would be exalted, or that Satan would be worshipped, but just that their enemy would not be. And that's what it is. Anytime someone could be turned from the gospel or turn from hearing the gospel, rejecting the gospel, that's a win for them. Because the only win for God, the only win for the church, are people completely turning their lives to Jesus Christ in salvific repentance. Not attending church, not giving to the church, not going to a church that has a cross in front of the pulpit or behind the pulpit, but accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and all that the Scriptures entails and writes down. And so, I know this is a very weak analogy and perhaps isn't even true, but you may not fully follow a certain candidate, but you just vote for them because it's better than the other one. That's still a win. They don't care, really, if you vote for them or not. They just care that you don't vote for the other guy because that's still a win for them especially if not voting for anyone is in regards to an incumbent who's going to has the scales tipped in their favor anyway and so this is the same thing you don't have to worship the devil specifically which people do to be following the doctrines of demons That is exactly the deceitfulness and the deceitful spirits that we are talking about. Because, although the world may not realize it, God knows that any individual is either for Him or against Him. And the worship of anything else, even if the priest or pastor or imam or whatever utters the name of God, But the doctrine does not align with the scriptures. That's doctrines of demons, and you're not truly worshiping God. At least not the God of the Bible. They may be worshiping some fictitious character that is a twist of what's in the Bible, but it is not the God of the Bible, which is why when people say, well, I don't really believe what you believe as Christians because I believe God is a God of love and he wouldn't send people to hell and anyone can go to heaven. And I say, with all due respect, we're not worshiping the same God because my God is defined in Scripture and my God, as defined in Scripture, does love. Now, what you are describing may be love, but God is also a God of justice and wrath. And any time you take a characteristic away from God, he ceases to be God. For example, if someone said, oh, you go to Grace Church of the Bay Area? I think I know the pastor. You say, oh, okay, describe him. Maybe you might be the same guy. He's about 5'8". Yeah, that's him. He's married. He has three kids. Yeah, that's him. He's a Caucasian male. Nope, wrong. Everything else may be close enough, but one characteristic wrong, and you're clearly not talking about the same guy. And it's the same thing with the Scriptures. Another thing I want to clarify actually came up this week as I caught wind of the fact that a brother uh, who is, is in our midst, has, who is from India, recently uh, returned from India, And mentioned that he was surprised how many people in America, including Christians, practice yoga because where he's from, it's a deeply religious thing. So is that doctrines of demons? Well, we have to default to what we see here in deceitful spirits. Are you worshiping? Is it pulling you away from the gospel? A lot of that is going to be individual to individual. I don't think you're worshiping anyone when you do yoga, I bet I could go into a a yoga studio here and most people don't even know that it's connected to any religion. You want me to hit this home even further? In Asia, the celebration of the Lunar New Year is extremely religious. The dragons, doctrines of demons. The lion dancers, doctrines of demons. The special foods, the ancestor worship. If I said it is very important here for for all of you, to know if you're a Libra or if you're, I don't know what the other ones are, the Zodiac, I'm a Libra, so you would say, and I said, you know, you got to get your newspaper, you got to look up, what does it say for Libras today? Because that's going to be your day, that's going to be your week. You would have a big problem with that, and yet we find much happiness and fun in saying, oh, what year were you born, according to the Chinese Zodiac? Is that doctrines of demons? Is that wrong? No. Is uh, gluttony wrong that most of you partook of this weekend? Maybe. But you get my point. It's a meal. It's cultural. You're not worshiping those. You're not picturing whatever sphere of heaven is being recognized and awoken and what of your ancestors are being, uh, being clued into what you're doing every time that firecracker pops in Chinatown. We don't believe that. We don't know that. So is it okay? Well, are you worshiping? Are you connecting to those things? And this goes back to really your own conscience, but also being aware, because there's also a certain point where if my brother says, I can't believe American Christians practice yoga because of what, how it has devastated religion and the thinking of my people in my country I wouldn't be like oh well not in America this is downward dog or whatever it is right there is an area where you need to consider how you may cause another person to stumble and be careful with those things you just be aware and outside of that you make sure you honor God and you make decisions and where you can enjoy things in the name of God I'm wearing a pink shirt many of you are wearing red is it, a hallmark, is it a Hallmark holiday, or is it some sort of worship of St. Valentine, you see? And so a lot of this stuff has been washed out in our culture and has just become commercial, commercialization, which has its own problems, but so that, does that make it okay? I would say largely so, but we still need to be aware, Okay. So, let's move on to verses 3 through 5 of First Timothy chapter 4, where he continues and starts explaining what exactly it is in regards to these false teachings. He says, They are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. And right there off of verse 4, you see that this may allude to and be applied to things like a dozen roses on Wednesday and chocolates and a big Chinese banquet this past weekend. Right. Well, this morning I want to give you two key problems with false teaching Two key problems with false teaching, very simple. First is the content of false teaching, and we find this in verse 3. Back in chapter 1, we were introduced to what is known as the Ephesian heresy. It's simply how we describe those false teachers because it was a problem there. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that many of the New Testament epistles were either written to address or in part address false teaching that was infiltrating the church. You got to understand Christianity was a new religion. Jesus had come and died as a contemporary of many of these people. It was within their lifetime. This was just starting The New Testament, for the most part, had not been written down, and so they were more susceptible to different things, especially since you had a lot of converts from Judaism, and especially because these cultures were deeply religious, unlike the American culture today. Everyone had some sort of temple that they went to on any given day. And so this particular blend of false teachings that was infiltrating the Ephesian church we see in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention, and here it is, to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God." which is by faith. Now, we don't know for certain, but scholars have indicated that it is most likely what is coming in a combination of Gnosticism and Judaism. Gnosticism at the time was prevalent. It was a big problem in the Christian church. People blended Christian and Gnostic teaching, which we have already talked about, is bad. And so the followers of Gnosticism, known as Gnostics, they claim to possess a higher form of knowledge or spiritual enlightenment. And you can see, if you remember your ancient history, how this would be so appealing, especially in certain places, as this was the rise and heyday of things like, or people like Aristotle and Greek philosophy. So there was a lot about enlightenment, higher knowledge, The Gnostics taught and believed that this knowledge elevated them above everyone else because they claimed to have a higher or deeper knowledge of all things, especially God. And for them, this special or mystical knowledge was the means of salvation. Not a mediator, not a savior, but knowledge. They also held to a distinct division between the material and the spiritual, They thought that all that was material or physical matter is inherently evil and all spiritual things are good, which we'll see how that plays out in a minute in regards to them abstaining or forbidding certain things. So you had blended in with that stuff, Jewish thinking, Jewish people at that time, we were very interested in family trees, which is why Paul mentions genealogies in chapter 1. They particularly wanted to track their heritage back to a specific Jewish patriarch. What tribe were you from? What patriarch is your ancestor, your good lineage? Even Paul talks about that, saying that I no longer care about those things. But if I did look at who I am because of my physical ancestry... So those are the genealogies of chapter 1, verse 4. This caused a lot of tension between Jews and Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians just being Christians who converted from Judaism, because the Jewish Christians looked to Christ, and Judaism looked to tribal ancestry. Now this background, all of it, gives us a clear picture of what Paul is addressing in chapter 4 where he describes the hypocritical, lying, false teachers of verse 2, who are the means by which the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits influence those who fall away, verse 1. What Paul does in verse 3 is describe some of the teachings of these false teachers and why they are wrong. Look at the verse. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, that is a description of the Ephesian heresy, but that in and of itself is not the main issue. The main issue is found in the rest of the verse, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And What we have here among the false teachers is not a mere suggestion. They are forbidding marriage and the eating or drinking of certain things foods. The word in your Bible, advocate, is in italics, indicating that this word was put there by the translators. It was not in the original Greek text. It was a decision, an informed decision that they made to help make it flow in the English language. But what that means is that the stronger force of forbidding is connecting, connected here grammatically to the foods. So, forbidding marriage and requiring or ordering abstinence from certain foods. Whoever these false teachers were, they were requiring their converts to follow strict dietary restrictions as well as to commit to celibacy. And you can see the blend of Gnosticism, all physical matter is evil, and Judaism, clean and unclean foods, in these teachings that were affecting the Ephesian church. Basically, what was being pushed was a form of asceticism. If you're not familiar with the word, asceticism was the practice of self-denial for the sake of attaining a high or higher spiritual state. In fact, there was during this time a full religion that was the ascetics who was were basically teaching this type of thing. So self-denial for the sake of attaining high. Or higher spiritual status. Now, the, although the Apostle Paul encourages or commends singleness for the sake of giving more time and energy to the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7, he also says that marriage is a good thing. More to the point, he never forbids marriage. And in that same book, although he says it would be good for you to refrain from certain foods if it causes a weaker brother to stumble, he then goes on to say if it doesn't cause a weaker brother to stumble, then enjoy it with thanksgiving. So there's never a forbidding of foods either. Now we know that there were dietary laws found in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. But we also know that, thankfully, All food has since been allowed in Christ. Flip really quickly with me to Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, where there's this vision that Peter has, that if you enjoy a plethora of food, if you enjoy eating rock badger or camel, for example, that were forbidden in the Old Testament, then you'll be thankful for Acts chapter 10, 9 through 16. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. Verse 11. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. So imagine like a bed sheet, right? It's being held by the four corners so that it's holding something like a hammock. Let's continue. Verse 12. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Remember, Peter's Jewish. He says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. This is a reference to the Mosaic dietary laws. This is not hygiene. He's not talking about you know scaling the fish or whatever. He's referring to what was considered unclean according to the Mosaic law. Verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. This all points to what God has graciously given us in terms of relationships, because remember, marriage was forbidden, as well as nourishment. And when we partake of these things, and even if we don't, we can thank God that He not only allows these things, but He provides them for us. Even if you are single, even if you don't prefer certain foods, you can be grateful that you still have the choice it's not sin. You don't have to avoid them in order to remain right in his eyes. And this goes beyond personal choices or preferences for the sake of ministry or diet or health or not causing a weaker brother to stumble. This is about God's gracious provision and our attitude toward that. And What Paul tells us at the end of verse 3 is exactly that, which emphasizes why asceticism is so wrong, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God created food not only for human nourishment, but for our enjoyment. God created the institution of marriage, and all that marriage entails, not just for procreation, but for our enjoyment. And again, even if you don't partake of those things, you can find joy in seeing your friends enjoy them. And when we talk about enjoyment or joy, the believer naturally responds with thanksgiving, which Paul refers to with the word gratefully, or with thanksgiving. There are so many things in life, you've experienced this, you get so frustrated, how dare you not allow me to do that, and someone says, you wouldn't do it anyways, you don't like that stuff, you don't like that sport, but it's the ability to choose that if you wanted to, and that's what we have in Christ even if you don't want those things, even if you're allergic, even if you have dedicated your Lord to the Lord to be single for the sake of ministry, you understand that there is a freedom there in Christ. You are familiar with 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One of the most quoted verses by Christians. But are you familiar with the verse that comes right before it. 1 Corinthians 10, 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And don't miss the fact that the way, the primary way you give glory to God is by giving thanks. In other words, it is in thanksgiving that we recognize God's gifts and we partake of them freely and without condemnation. This not only reminds us that God wants us to partake of marriage and food, but also reminds us that they are a means to glorify God. So ultimately, what these false teachers are doing, this is very important, they are robbing God of His glory by removing the opportunity to give thanks for things He has created for us to enjoy. Ultimately, this proper attitude toward God's gifts can only be exhibited in true Christians. Although the unbeliever can be thankful and can enjoy these things, it is only the Christian who can fully honor God in enjoyment and thanksgiving, which is why Paul says that they are to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. The reason this is true is because it is only Christians who will eat or get married and connect it to a faithful, loving Creator. That connection to the Creator can only be fully recognized and appreciated because of the power of the gospel. and it is, it is only true believers who look at the world and understand God's purpose in creation, which is not just for us to enjoy or complain about, but for His glory. It is only true believers who know the gospel and see the basics of life, like food and marriage, as that which is undeserved grace, and thus receive them with proper and humble Thanksgiving. Turn to your Old Testament and look at what the Jews had to avoid before the fulfillment of the law by Christ. Leviticus 11, verses 1 through 12. Leviticus 11, verses 1 through 12. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from, from all the animals that are on the earth. So, this is that which is allowed. Verse 3 Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hooves, and chews the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those who chew the cud, which is okay to eat prior, but, or among those who divide the hoof. The camel, For though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. Like the Shafan, rock badger, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses, They are unclean to you. You cannot even move a dead one off of your farm. You cannot be a butcher and prepare that for someone who does not follow Yahweh and eats these things. They are unclean. You're not to touch it or eat it. Verse 9, these you may eat, whatever is in the water. So now we're into seafood. All that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. Salmon, yes. Dolphin, no. No scales. Verse 10, But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you. And they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcasses. You shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. Now, although much of what was forbidden for the Jews to eat is neither available nor appetizing to us, there is a lot in here that is forbidden that we can enjoy now and some of you enjoyed this morning. I know this is going to be cruel because you guys are getting hungry. Pork products, bacon, ham, prosciutto, seafood that does not have fins and scales were forbidden. Goodbye calamari, clams, oysters, mussel, shrimp, crab, lobster, scallops, paella, crab cakes, my personal favorite, clam chowder. You say, well, I don't really like those things anyway. But do you like freedom? Do you like freedom in Christ? Do you like being able to accidentally have an ingredient in your dish because of cross-contamination at that restaurant without worrying that you have actually sinned against God? To eat without having to memorize a list of every single clean and unclean food that exists? Remembering what kind of hoof each animal has. And if it chews the cud. I couldn't tell you who chews the cud or who doesn't if my life depended on it so as to make sure you do not lose your standing before your God in case you accidentally take a bite? I I thought this was cow. I didn't know it was camel. Now i got to go to the temple. I mean, even today, in all seriousness, there'd still probably be an app for that. But even then, it could be a burden. It would be dangerous. And you would avoid many places, many restaurants. You would look for... Anything that is kosher only. And this freedom all exists for the believer because of Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle? Do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self made religion and self abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, stop being worried about don't touch that, don't eat that, and worry about your heart. And what truly matters to God and true sin, anger, lust, all those types of things. We know that what we're seeing here in First Timothy is not limited to ancient religions. I mean, think of all the mainstream religions today that prohibit food and marriage. Hindus don't eat beef. And some believe that strong-scented foods like onions and garlics hinder spiritual development. Many Buddhists are required to be vegetarian while their monks and nuns cannot marry. Caffeine and alcohol are prohibited for Mormons. Seventh-day Adventists avoid meat, fish, poultry, and caffeine. Muslims, as you know, are forbidden to eat pork or anything that is not halal. Catholic priests and nuns are forbidden to marry, while all Catholics are to avoid meat on the Fridays of the Lenten season as well as Ash Wednesday. Doctrines of demons. But I don't want you to miss the overarching point here. Paul brings up marriage and food because these are the things that the false teachers in ancient Ephesus are convincing, professing believers to abstain from. The main problem, however, is that false teachers say that something is bad or forbidden when God says it is good and allowed. I'm going to say that again. The main problem is that false teachers say that something is bad or forbidden when God says it is good and allowed. And what's more, you are to partake in it with glorifying Him through thanksgiving. So, although the content of false teaching is illustrated through the prohibition of marriage and food, the problem with false teaching, especially those that claim to worship the God of the Bible but don't truly, is that it misrepresents who God is and what he has done. I cannot remember if it was in the sermon or a conversation I had after service, but I reference 1 Corinthians regarding the pitiable state we as Christians would be if Christ was not raised from the dead. As Paul says, that if Christ has not been raised, then we are bearing false witness against God, That he raised Christ. In other words, if God did not raise Jesus from the dead, and we are saying that the essence of the gospel is that he did, we are misrepresenting God and essentially lying about him, even though it's something that we perceive as good. He raised from the dead, he conquered death. But even something good, if it's not true, is still not true. Now that's hypothetical because Christ was raised from the dead. What isn't hypothetical is that false teachers do misrepresent God and are thus bearing false witness against Him by implying that if you do A, B, and C, you are honoring Him when in fact, or rather if you avoid A, B, and C, you are honoring Him when in fact His Word says that those things are good. And holy. That, in the end, is the content of false teaching teaching that God wants something of his children when he does not. Saying that he wants you to do something that he has in reality said that that something is evil. Or saying that something is evil when in reality he has said it is good. In any way, shape, or form, misrepresenting what he has clearly said in his word. Let's go to the second key problem with false teaching, the contrast of false teaching. Verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For if it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Paul repeats what he said at the end of verse 3, but with more explanation. Notice first, that he specifies that what he has been talking about is specifically that which God has created. In the creation account, we know that over and over again, God looks at what he had made that day and declared it good. And over the course of the rest of Revelation, He clarifies how things which are good are to be used such that the practice and handling of these things does not turn what is good into what is bad, especially in light of the entrance of sin into the world. Perhaps the most obvious example would be sexual intimacy. A gift from God to be used and practiced, but used out of context is sinful and wrong and frankly is the root of much of what has destroyed our society and country today. The vegetation that he has created is good and helpful. So are the mind of man and the ingenuity that he has created in our brains, the ability that has developed into modern science that continues to grow in its conquering of disease and difficulty. But the concoction injected or the wrong plant smoked and you have sin and an extreme form of drunkenness and iniquity. When Paul goes on to say that nothing should be rejected if received with thanksgiving, he is speaking within the context of that which is allowed and provided by God for his glory. In other words, the true Christian will not give thanks for that which is sinful to put it another way, true biblical and Christian gratitude is based on God's character and what His Word has allowed. When I was in college, I think I've shared this story with you many years ago. We used to do, you know, we had a a, a really strong campus Bible study, and a, and the Bible study because it was a college Bible study didn't meet during the summer. And so we started having an annual uh, road trip to Yosemite. Now, if you are familiar with UCLA, I never look at the statistics, but it seems that everyone you meet is either from Orange County or the other 50% is from the Bay Area. And so we picked Yosemite because it would be a middle ground, some are in summer school, Orange County, Northern California with their parents. And so we'd meet there kind of as a middle summer get together and hang out and just go to Yosemite and camp and have fun. Well, I remember, and we would always stay at this church that graciously allowed us to sleep uh, in their building, and I remember looking over and some of the Bible study leaders were talking to this guy, a friend of mine, who was literally shaking and getting so passionate and sharing all that he had learned that summer. He had delved into the Scriptures and was so so excited to finally see one of us to share. But there was a look of concern on all of the leaders' faces. He went home, we went home after a couple days in Fresno and Yosemite, and we found out from his parents that he had gone off the deep end. He had studied the Scriptures and come to the realization that if you are a Christian, And if you give thanks, you can do anything to the glory of God. And his, I believe, non Christian parents reached out to us when they found out that he was running around the streets befriending gang members of all the local gangs. How did they know this was happening? because they somehow thankfully stopped him when he was literally walking down the street towards his parents' house with gang members following him. They said it looked like a parade because in the name of glorifying God with thanksgiving, he was bringing these gang members to his parents' house to have an orgy. And for you kids who don't know what that is, it's a party that people have specifically to do sinful and immoral things. That's all you need to know. Don't ask your parents later. <laughs> Just gross, disgusting. But he believed he was honoring God in doing those things in his parents' house, quoting scripture. Because, I don't know if it was this verse, but passages like this misinterpreted hey, give thanks. It's all okay. Get drunk, get high, sleep with whoever you want, as long as you give thanks, because God created that plant. God created that man and that woman, and intimacy and the pleasure in that. So give thanks, and it's all okay. By the way, he's doing fine now. Married with kids, doing great. But this happens when you have false doctrine that is coupled with, or even using, Bible verses. You start leading a life that you believe is honoring God while disregarding the clear guidelines and limitations of the Scriptures, and this is exactly what false teachers do. Taking verses out of context. On the broadest level, taking the truth of God's love, but broadening it it to allow for any sin and any religion, atheism included, as that which leads to heaven. And as I mentioned when we began, you may argue that that is love, but it is not God because it ignores other divine characteristics such as justice and wrath. On a more specific level, you have charismatics who take the sign gifts of the New Testament. And even if they were still existing today, they do not practice them in a way that aligns with Scripture and they completely disregard what the New Testament says, how these Gifts are to be practiced. Or churches that affirm dreams and visions when the Bible is clear that revelation is complete. You have prosperity preachers using Scripture to defend their belief that God wants you to have health and riches in this life or to live for today rather than eternity when the Bible is very clear that one of the best and most effective and most wonderful tools that God has for our growth is trial which often amounts to, by the way, poverty and disease. Whatever form it takes, it is all driven by an underlying proposition that this honors the Lord, often with the addendum that these things will, in turn, make God honor you. You couldn't get further from the truth. And so, back to our text, when Paul says that everything created by God is good, We understand that it does not mean that every usage or attitude toward what is good is automatically also good. And Paul makes that very clear at the end of the verse. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. There are things that the Gnostics and Jews and other religious leaders were saying should be done away with, but there is an antidote to all of this, and that is gratitude. Thanksgiving, a grateful heart that recognizes the goodness of God and His provision, is the antidote to rejecting good things. That's not going to happen for the unbeliever who does not acknowledge God, because if you don't acknowledge God, then you don't see how good and gracious He is. This gratitude will also not exist in those who do not have a deep appreciation of their own sinfulness, because they then think they deserve what they get. So there is no gratitude. This will also not occur in the hearts of those who are selfish or greedy, Christians included. Those who love themselves love the world because it is the world that feeds themselves. So the pursuit becomes not God's glory, but personal glory, comfort, satisfaction, money, reputation. And instead of thank you... What is uttered in their hearts and minds and lips is, it's about time. Rather than humble appreciation, it is patting oneself on the back, even like a shark that smells blood in the water, creating an insatiable hunger for more. You know this, it's never enough. Pursue the things of the world, it is never enough. When it comes to the true believer, There is no convincing this grateful and biblical individual that all material objects are evil. There is no disparity between clean and unclean foods. There is only a theological understanding of the relationship between sinner and Savior, which explodes in gratitude. Do not overlook, however, the clear condition here the if of the statement. It is acceptable because you receive it with gratitude. It's not that a lack of thanksgiving automatically makes that food or relationship evil, but we are reminded of the constant mindset that all Christians are to have. And the more you understand the gospel, the more you will have this attitude. And the more you have this attitude, the more satisfied and content you will be with everything and anything God gives you and only what God gives you. There's no criticism, there's no I deserve more, there's no complaint. And as we go into verse 5, we see that there is a practical aspect of this. These things are not to be rejected because they are sanctified, literally set apart, removed from common or profane use, holy. How are they sanctified? He says through the word of God and prayer. Before we move on to the means, I want to remind you that the word sanctified simply means made holy. And this definition that I just gave is a great picture to remove from profane or common use. The picture that may come to mind are the sacred vessels and instruments that were part of Israel's worship involving the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that housed it. Great details are given in Exodus on how these items were to be designed, made, and shaped, and what they were to be made of. But the most prominent aspects of these is that despite their monetary value, the rarity of the wood and metals they were made of, and the intricacy of their design, they were rarely used. And that's because they were created for specific purposes within the worship of Yahweh. And what strikes us is not that it was wasteful, but quite the opposite. Their earthly value was appropriate because of their spiritual value in worship. They were special. They were not to be used at the dinner table or in someone's home for family devotions. So much so that we know in 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah, who as far as we can tell was well-intentioned, reached out to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling on the floor, and God struck him dead for it. In fact, the passage said God's anger burned against Uzzah. Well-intentioned, but sinful. And we know that all of that has changed in Christ. There is no holy of holies or untouchable Ark, but there is still a distinction between the holy and the profane. It is not as evident as to the naked eye as golden pillars or purple and scarlet robes for the priests. But there is a holy versus profane, and the holy is us. Because we are in Christ, we are sanctified. Set apart for holy use. Remember that definition. Removed from the usage of the holy commonplace or profane what's the commonplace working just for money friendships just for companionship eating just to enjoy and be nourished everything you do in your life is now set apart for the lord and is to be done with thanksgiving and for his glory and it is because of our sanctification our separation from the profane namely the unbelieving world and all its pursuits and philosophies, that allows us to gratefully accept God's provision in a way that it is also set apart. Because of how we approach our marriages, our parenting, our cars, our jobs, our bills, our dollar bills, those things become set apart for holy use and not the common and profane. And like those instruments within the tabernacle, the things that the false teachers are forbidding have in reality been set apart so they are suitable for purposes of worship. And with that in mind, as we look at the means by which these things are sanctified, understand that the word and prayer are of God. In other words, biblical. These things are declared by God to be acceptable and good, For Christians to partake in through the means that God has ordained, and those means are through the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God, there are two nuances to this. First is that it is through the Word that we have a relationship with the Father. Not the physical Bible, mystically doing that, but it is through the Bible that we know of what Christ has done for us and how to be saved. It is also through the Word that we learn that these things are good. And provided by the Creator and are therefore not to be rejected. The second nuance is that the prayers that we pray are based on God's word, which brings us to the second means of sanctification that Paul mentions here is prayer. You know, speaking of the tabernacle, we are reminded here that when Jesus died, the veil blocking the entrance to the Holy of Holies was torn in two. All believers have instant and free access to God in prayer. There is no priest needed. There is no unblemished animal needed. There is no special building needed. And it is in this freedom that we pray with thanksgiving and acknowledgement of all that He is and all that He has given us. And then we enjoy We enjoy in a way that only believers can. Whether it's things that we once thought were forbidden because of the teachings of our prior religion, meat, seafood, marriage, money, whatever. Or if they are things that we have always had but now view with a proper perspective because of our unworthiness and the goodness of the giver of all good things, meat, seafood, marriage, money, whatever. By the way, you may be wondering, is this a passage that would support that we should be praying before our meals? Yes, it is. It is exactly what this is saying. But, again, not just because you do it, not just because it's what your religion taught you. We had a guest, uh, one of our, our kids' friends, Overnight, the other day, some of you met him at the men's uh, gathering, prayed for the meal. He crossed himself because he's, he's Catholic. Just what does that mean? I bet he doesn't know. He's just supposed to do it. And that often becomes how we give thanks before meals. Thank you, Lord. And, and, you, know, and you stop and you start eating and go, wait, did we pray? Because you didn't even think about it. It's just something you do. Love you. Bye whatever, hello, how you doing? Someone actually is trying to tell you how he's doing and you're just walking by because it's just something you say. So, think about it, develop a heart of attitude, give thanks, partake of the things that are not sin, partake of the things that are good, but not in a sinful way. And it's wonderful to enjoy. Beware of the false teachers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us and allowing us to enjoy these things. Undoubtedly, there are those in this room who still can't eat certain things or practice certain things without their conscience bothering them because of what they were taught in their former religion. I pray that you would help them to be free from that and be able to partake of those things in a way that honors and worships you and that the rest of us would be sensitive and consider the weaker brother or sister in Christ. But ultimately, Lord, may we guard ourselves against the false teachers, whether it's forbidding things or calling people to abstain from certain things or some other form of false teaching. May we stick to the Word of God and understand the truth, not just to avoid false teachers, but to preach the gospel to others, including the false teachers as well. pray these things in Jesus' name.